You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So I want to talk about something called Midrash a little bit today. Anybody here of Midrash before? Max, I get a thumbs up. Uh, Leanne, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, a few of you. All right, well, good. Um, so I guess this is going to be totally out of the blue for some of you. But um, Midrash is an interpretive tradition within Judaism that goes back at least to the time of Christ and actually probably before even that. Uh, I wish more Christians had an understanding of this tradition as it would go far in eliminating the narrow and often one-dimensional way we tend to read the Bible. Uh, we often read the text as if it only has one right interpretation, uh, thus reducing what interpretation can be down to something like an archeological inquiry. Midrash, on the other hand, is a reverent and creative process of asking new questions about the Bible, bringing our own experiences and insights with us and finding new answers to our questions. It's about asking, what is the text saying to us today in our context, in our lives? And to be clear, that might mean reading the text really different than the way it was originally intended. Midrash does not make authorial intent the highest priority. This is why you see Paul, the Apostle Paul, quoting the Torah, uh, sometimes out of context in his letters to various churches, uh, like his epistle to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, where he argues that Abraham was justified by faith and not by the law. And, and Paul's quoting from books like Genesis and was my mic and... Uh, should I, should I switch over? Or? All right, cool. Uh, he's quoting from Habakkuk, Genesis, Deuteronomy, and these books out of the Torah, and in a sense, proof texting. I mean, arguably, yeah, you don't find the phrase justification by faith really in those texts, or, you know, Jewish people from that time period really understanding it the way that Paul did. And so Paul is, in a sense, doing midrash in his letters taking the passages out of the Torah and applying them into his understanding of Christ. What it means to be the people of God. This is a kind of midrash. Paul was doing midrash. And in general, Jewish scholars and, and rabbis have, have never obsessed like Christians have with historical meaning and authorial intent. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for historical meaning and authorial intent and understanding that. Uh, and it's really important. And it can help us, I would say, to use our vernacular, deconstruct and dispel, uh, I would say, unhealthy and harmful readings of the text, because certainly there's a lot of those out there. Um, but there are other interpretations. There's other ways of reading the text that can be positive um, and creatively unlock new meanings that can be beneficial. Perhaps you can think of Midrash even as a mystical reading of the text. Midrash means thinking of the text like poetry or music. Any good artist would want you to hear in their music or in whatever their art is. They'd want you to hear not just what they're trying to convey, but also what's meaningful to you, right? 
Any good artist would want their art to speak to you in ways that they didn't intend. They want their art, usually, they want their art to have a kind of life of its own. And uh, I think that's close to what the biblical authors had in mind too, or at least, <laughs> if they didn't, at least that's what the rabbis and the original audience of these texts so many centuries ago often had in mind. They, they read it as in a way that spoke to them and their circumstances and their time and their place. And that was seen as a faithful reading, even if it wasn't part of the authorial intent or original meaning. But we, we lost that poetic spirit, uh, that poetic spirit somehow in the church. And I think we can trace it back at least to the fourth century. And, you know, the time of Constantine and the fights over orthodoxy and the perceived need in the church to get our theology just right, right? to get everybody on, in the same interpretive boat, get everybody, you know, affirming the same creeds and you know, believing all the same things. But again, this has never been a problem in Judaism. Jews have always been more comfortable with theological differences and seeing the Bible as something that's elastic, living and evolving, rather than something static and unchanging. I'm reminded of, a, of a, an old Jewish joke that I've told before that bears repeating here this morning. It's a good one. Two rabbis are sitting on a park bench, uh, and they're debating over some passage in the Torah and, and what it means. Uh, God is looking down from heaven on high, and finally, he has enough. And he says, oh, I've got to tell these, i got to set these guys straight. So, so God shines a light down from the sky on, under the two rabbis, and of course, they stop, they stop conversing, and they look up, and God says from the light, I'm tired of listening to this debate. Let me tell you what this passage really means. And God tells them, and they, they pause, and they look at each other kind of incredulously, and they turn back to God, and they say, who asked you? <laughs> this is Midrash. Uh, this, 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 this is Midrash. It's a long history, long, long tradition within Judaism. Not even God gets some final say in the matter and, and what the text means, because the text has a life of its own, and, and God has only himself to blame for this, because th this is the nature of all literature everywhere, especially narratives and stories, which make up, comprise so much of what we call our sacred scriptures. It's mostly narratives, mostly story, which, you know, subjective, right? Uh, and the Gospels in particular are narrative and story, are they not? Uh, and actually, there are good reasons why we should read the Gospels as midrash, as a kind of first century midrashic reading of the Old Testament. You keep in mind, the Gospels were, of course, written by first century Jews. And I think, and, and there's scholars, I'm not the first person to come up with this. This is, certainly has a uh, backing within New Testament scholarship. This idea that Jesus stands in the Gospels as a midrash reading of Moses, a, a midrashic reading of the, of the book of the law, a midrash reading of the prophets like Isaiah, or a midrash reading of the Exodus narrative. Consider, for example, the story we looked at just last week, I believe it was, where we looked at the story of the temptation of Christ in the desert and how that parallels in so many ways the story of Israel passing through the Red Sea, right? And then venturing out into the desert wilderness for 40 years to be tested, just as Jesus, after passing through the Jordan, you know, being baptized in the Jordan, is driven out 
into the desert to be tested, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, right? And he's tested the exact same way Israel was, with hunger and doubt and idolatry. This is, this is a midrashic reading of the Exodus narrative, an attempt to read Jesus into it and to put a new spin on the Exodus by saying that Jesus is a new Moses. Jesus is a fulfillment of the Exodus tradition. Pay attention to him, they were saying. He is a fulfillment of the law. Likewise, we should read the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well as a midrash reading of Genesis 29. And this is the story we're gonna look at today. Uh, the story in Genesis 29 is the story of Jacob meeting Rachel at the well, this very same well, actually, the exact same well Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at. And let's look at the story in John 4 now before we look at it in Genesis 29. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. I mean, even the text itself isn't hiding that this is Jacob's well. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It would have been nice if he was a little more polite about it. I've always thought. Just says, give me a drink to this stranger, right? His disciples had gone to the city to buy food, so he was alone. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave, you, who gave us this well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of the water in this well will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never, ever be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never thirst again or have to keep coming here to draw water. She's being kind of a biblical literalist here, right? She's taking him too literally. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now you're not even married to. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. <laughs> Love that line. Yeah, you're clairvoyant, uh, I guess. is why, uh, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's talking about uh, Mount Gerizim in, in Samaria. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say the place, meaning you Jews, say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For the true worshipers of God must worship him in spirit and truth. So there's the story. And again, it's basically a piece of mimetic literature. You've heard that term here before at Central, mimetic meaning to mimic. This story mimics one before, right? 
the story out of Genesis 29, Jacob meeting Rachel at the well. But it's not just mimetic literature. This is part of this Mishratic tradition within Judaism that dates back at least to the first century. And let's look at the story now out of Genesis 29. Jacob is, is looking for a wife. And I guess back then, instead of uh, going to eHarmony, you would go to a well to find a lady. And so he goes to this well. He encounters this woman at a well that he recognizes as his cousin, Rachel. She's kid. It's his cousin. Now, back then, it was common to marry your cousin. I won't get into all the reasons why. Uh, that's not really scandalous to marry your cousin. Um, Anyway, he immediately falls in love with Rachel at the well, and he tells her who he is, that he's Jacob, and that, you know, he's kin. And he even waters her sheep for her as a gesture of, of kinship, a gesture of familiar, familiar love, I guess you could say. And she's overcome with joy. She's so overcome with joy that she leaves him at the well in order to run home and to tell her family about this amazing man she just met. Just like um, the Samaritan woman ran from the well, ran home to tell her family of this amazing man she just met. Jacob is, of course, offered Rachel's hand in marriage. And um, fast forward to John chapter 4, and again, we find, the, we find the exact same story retold, but a new spin put on it, right? What's all this mean? Well, Keep in mind that the story of Rachel and Jacob is a story of betrothal. This, this, is, this is a love story, story of an engagement. Jesus, of course, isn't literally betrothed to the Samaritan woman, but they share this intimate connection, do they not? Where Jesus reveals and he knows intimate details about her life, her sex life. She's been married five times. The man she's sleeping with now, she's not even married to, he says. So there's this intimate connection between the two of them, which is kind of scandalous because, again, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. They're not supposed to have anything to do, to, do with each other. He to be talking to her to say nothing of having this kind of intimate connection with her. Jews and Samaritans, and yet Jews and Samaritans were cut, so to speak, just like Jacob and Rachel were cousins. Jews and Samaritans actually were um, ethnic roots and religious roots. Samaritanism is a very similar religion to Judaism. Ethnically, they share the same roots. They're cousins. But just like close family members with old squabbles, Jews and Samaritans, well, they, they grew to hate each other over the years. And yet Jesus makes this strong connection with her and shows her that she is kin to him. This five-time married Samaritan woman, he treats as kin. And the meaning of this midrash is obvious, I think, at least. Jesus is establishing an, a new kind of kinship, a new kind of kingdom. Just as Jacob and Rachel married and became the parents of the nation of Israel, so Jesus and the Samaritan woman, in a sense, unite to create a new nation, a new spiritual community where ethnic and religious differences are broken down. They no longer matter. And a nation of people who worship God in spirit and truth, to put it like that, as Jesus tells her. To worship God in spirit and truth means that 
God is no longer worshipped in this temple or that temple or on that mountain or this mountain, this religion or that religion, but the true worship God desires isn't really worship at all, but it's love, it's reconciliation, it's justice, it's peace. The same kind of love, reconciliation, justice, and peace that Jesus establishes between himself and this Samaritan woman. To worship God in spirit and truth is to shatter all oppressive social structures that we create. The barriers we create that separate us from each other, like Jew and Samaritan, Christian and non-Christian, male and female, gay and straight, rich and poor, black and white, etc. Breaking down these barriers, overcoming these oppressive obstacles is what true worship is. This is what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. It is the only essential worship. You don't need a church for that kind of worship. You don't need a temple. You don't need a mountain or a sacred space. It happens in you and within your relationships. Think of the, of the five women mentioned at the beginning let me back up and say this. This, this Mishratic reading, this Midrash reading of Genesis 29 that we find in John's gospel is really part of a, of a larger theme in the gospels of women. This is Women's History Month, so we're focusing on women here. Women playing a subversive role in the way that we think of God and what it means to be his people. There is a much larger theme in the gospels beyond this of women playing this subversive and radical role flipping the script in the way that we think of God and what it means to be his people. Think of the five women mentioned at the beginning of Matthew's gospel that we talked about at the beginning of this month. These five so-called mothers of God. Matthew lists only five women in his genealogy of Jesus. At the, right at the beginning of his gospel, he gives us 50 names of Jesus's ancestors, 45 of which are men, only five of which are women. And the five women he mentioned all share some things in common. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. They are all foreigners, uh, idolaters, sex workers, or women of questionable purity. And yet they are presented as kin to Jesus. They are the great grandmothers of Jesus, the son of, the son of God. In this way, they disrupt, they, they subvert the dominant first century Jewish understanding of God and what it means to his, be his people. They function, their presence in Matthew functions, you could say, as a midrash reading on Israel's history and what it meant to be the people of God. According to the author Marika Rose, and I'm getting a lot from her these days, she says this, these women... These five women, and to them, let's add the Samaritan woman, so six, six of them in the Gospels, these women represent Israel's failure to be racially, religiously, and sexually pure, and yet all are, not despite, but because of this, righteous and heroic figures. They all, in different ways, ensure the continuation of Israel and its identity as the people of God. These women deconstruct, by the way, end quote, <laughs> these women deconstruct any notion that God has to play by certain rules 
or that God is somehow contained or revealed solely within the, the neat confines of a particular religion or a particular theology. In this way, and in many others, the God revealed in Jesus defies the religious imagination of his day. I mean, utterly defies it. He broke all their religious rules. If you read the Gospels, he just breaks all their religious rules and, and all their theological presuppositions about who God had to be. Such a God should be understood as utterly incomprehensible, utterly incomprehensible, especially to the rigid religious mind. Not just the first century Jewish mind, but anyone who tries to domesticate, define, or contain this God in a particular religion or theology. On one hand, this teaches us to embrace uncertainty, unknowing, and complexity in our religion, and accept that there are only messy and imperfect human ways that we engage in faith and spirituality. On the other hand, I think this teaches us to break down the social and religious barriers that divide us from each other, just as Jesus did. That's my midrash reading of these passages, and I hope that's encouraging to you. As we go into our time of communion today, I want to read to you a short pro poem. This is written by Ala Renee Bozarth, and she wrote this as a communion meditation on Mary giving birth to Jesus. If you've been at Central for a while, you've probably heard this before. She wrote this as communion meditation on Mary giving birth to Jesus and how Mary's prominence in this act is often overlooked because she's a woman. One could say that this little piece of midrash or, or poem on Mary and the meaning of the Lord's Supper is, is really reveals the profundity of the Lord's Supper, I think. So let's hear it now. Before Jesus was his mother, before his cry on the cross, her cry in the manger, before his offering, her offering, before the breaking of bread and death, the extending of her body in birth, before the offering of the cup, the offering of her breast, before his blood, her blood, and by her body and blood, his body and blood, the wise men knelt to hear the woman's word in wonder. Holding up her sacred child, she said, receive and let your hearts be healed and your lives be filled with love, for this is my body. And this is my blood, for this is my body, and this is my blood, she said. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. All right, so 
Uh, now we have our weekly time for discussion or questions or comments, if anybody has any. And those of you participating via Zoom, you're welcome to participate as well in this. And uh, yeah, you know, we're talking about Midrash today, and I'm, I'm curious to hear, you know, um, as, as I said, one of the, um, one, one of the focuses on Midrash is, is reading the text kind of poetically and hearing maybe what others don't hear in it and allowing the text to speak to us specifically, maybe in our circumstances, in our lives. And I'm curious if, if, if anything I said today, really even anything you've been reading lately or encountering lately through, through the text of the Bible has been speaking to you in unique ways. What, what do you, what do you hear? Maybe that's the question I want to ask. Um, yeah, does anybody want to share anything along, along those lines or have a question about any anything I said in my talk? Yeah, sure. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and was that you raising your hand? Cool. I, I love this idea of Midrash, like I've heard about it before, and I love the Jewish tradition of like debating and turning scripture over and having different, different ideas, <clears throat> because coming from a, you know, as many of us, I think, a, a very American evangelical, there's one way to read things kind of background, it kind of gives, I think, a lot of um, freedom. And, and, you know, um, the way Paul uses scripture that we never really understood, I didn't as an evangelical. Like, I just thought, you know, Paul, Paul is right, right? Which, you know, I never really liked Paul, but that's another story. <laughs> you didn't like the Apostle Paul? <laughs> Please my, say more. Not my favorite, not my favorite. A little rigid and arrogant. Yeah, but, yeah uh, you know, fair. I digress. Um, but when I started to, to, to hear and understand that he takes Old Testament passages completely out of context and uses them exactly the way he wants to use them to make his point, just shows more flexibility of scripture than, than we've been, you know, in evangelicalism, I say, we have been, um, taught that exists. So it gives me a lot of freedom to, to like look at scripture differently. And, um, you know, the idea that Jesus was deconstructing Judaism is fascinating to me too. Like all of it, like all of that, I think, um, makes looking at scripture that way seem less heretical than I would have been led to believe in yeah. my past life. No, I appreciate that. Really good remarks. I, we, I think it's important to remember that even the name Israel means one who wrestles with God, right? It was Jacob who, of course, wrestled with this angel by the river Jabbok, right? And his name was changed to Israel to signify this kind of relationship with God, where God isn't something, you know, you just leave alone. <laughs> you wrestle, you know? And uh, that's always been part of the identity of I think of, of, of Judaism, but um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I go, I waffle back and forth, you know, listening to you and I'm, I'm like, well, I care a lot about 
authorial intent. I care about a lot about original meaning because that actually is what led me into deconstruction is reading you know, a lot of these passages and being like this, what I'm hearing in evangelicalism is really alien to actually what was going on in the Bible, what actually the Bible is. Um, but then it's kind of like, you need to go through that and have like a second kind of quote unquote naive, they call it a second naivete where you learn that, well, perhaps the difference between conservatives and progressive Christians are that the progressives can admit that they cherry pick. <laughs> And the, the conservatives can't, right? Conservatives think, no, we've got it as it actually is. We, we're not, we, we don't interpret the Bible. The Bible interprets itself. The Bible's clear. This kind of doctrine of perspicuity, as Tad DeLay, a friend of ours, would say. Conservatives believe in that doctrine of perspicuity, that it's clear, no interpretation needed. We just do what the Bible says, period, end of story. Well, being a progressive means, you know, acknowledging, no, we're cherry, you're cherry picking, you're just not admitting it. You're, you're interpreting, you're just not admitting it. Uh, we're able to admit it and to um, find interpretations and readings of the text that are healthy, hopefully, that are life-giving, that are uh, liber you know, liberationist. Um, but yeah, let's let's be honest. We are absolutely just like our our Jewish forefathers, because Christianity came out of Judaism, right? We are we are engaging in midrash, and that's why it's a wonderful thing. But that means you know we have to hold on to whatever our reading is. In some ways kind of lightly and not say i've arrived at the truth and instigate or inaugurate a new kind of conservatism as a result right um but again being able to admit that's what you're doing is huge and is really the difference between a fundamentalist and a non-fundamentalist yeah other other thoughts steve yeah here oh oh thanks yeah just want to say uh i appreciate everything that you just said one of the struggles that i've always had with midrash is i can you hold the mic a little higher sure. i've always enjoyed the poetic interpretation um but often or typically the examples of midrash that i encounter are these really beautiful progressive readings of um old jewish you know texts like the binding of isaac or okay. uh, and I struggle with that just because there's also another side to Midrash, which is very conservative interpretations yeah. of texts as well that are um, part of where, you know, our history of reading um, uh, Eve from a very non-feminist uh, perspective come from and things like that. And so there's, you know, I, I appreciate the like, well, we're all interpreting because midrash isn't always this like progressive beautiful right, storytelling point. of the wonderful joy and peace of, of because it is wrestling it's both sides right it's the two rabbis on the bench who are probably arguing the progressive and the very conservative reading of a text um and that's an important part of the debate is that we're in the conversation with others uh if those other people can just also accept that they're interpreting in their you know direction as well so yeah, I mean, as soon as you make that, that you, you burn the bridge of naivete, so to speak, on what you're doing, I, I think it almost always leads to a less conservative place. <laughs> because as soon as you do that, you're admitting the text is not static or inerrant, and that we're all, you know, coming to the text with biases and presuppositions, and that's inherently deconstructive. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. Yeah, um, he passed the mic back to Leanne. Welcome, Leanne. Hey everyone, it's great to meet you all. First time here, um, led here by the wonderful Jen, uh, attending All Saints for a bit. 
Yeah, and Jen, Jen is actually with Ashley, her wife, this morning, because Ashley's preaching. I forget where, but she's preaching somewhere. Yeah, anyway, whatever. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, great to meet you all. Um, it's interesting. I've been reading, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the work of Marcus Borg. I've been reading some of his books recently. He's wonderful, um, recently passed, sadly. Um, but he, in one of his books, um, spoke, wrote a lot about how, um, you know, the Midrashic nature of Jesus and how his barometer was always leaning towards compassion over purity mm. and how coming from like a purity culture and how Judaism at the time was so much a purity culture. And so all of his Midrash was sort of, and his engagement with Judaic texts was always leaning towards compassion rather than upholding this purity culture. And it's so interesting because I think the wheel has come full circle and we find Christianity today obsessed with purity culture. Um, so I think like hearing all of your points and um, the sermon today, I think it's interesting to think about engaging in midrash, but like what's that sort of barometer and that sort of like, um, I don't know what to say, like, like point of reference so that we're always kind of veering towards like compassion over purity, like liberation over like separation. Um, and then also just like thinking about the synoptic gospels themselves being in a sense midrashic because all the three of them are telling accounts in slightly different ways and like they're in dialogue with each other. So that to me is like pointing to that way of engaging it in dialogue because they are all in dialogue. Um, so yeah, just been thinking a lot about Borg's point about um, compassion over purity and that we can in interpret it in different ways, but are we leaning towards that other side as opposed to a purity, upholding purity culture? Yeah, no, really good remarks. Um, I love that compassion over purity is kind of the, the rubric or the standard that we should uphold. Sometimes I, I'll say here that because um, people often ask, well, how do we make these textual decisions? How do we read the text now? What's our standard? And what I often say is we need to, the question that should be guiding us is the question is, what is best for human well-being and human flourishing? And the readings of the text that, that enhance human well-being and human flourishing rather than detract from it are the, are the readings we need to hold, I, I believe. That that's, in other words, love. That's basically the answer, right? Is, you know, the question of what does compassion look like? What does love look like? What does justice look like? And that's the interpretation. That's the lens we come to the text with. Um, yeah, I know that's compassion over purity. And that applies not just to matters, because we, we hear the word purity, especially if you grew up in the church, I immediately think of sexual purity, because that was the drum that was beaten, right, all through high school and early adulthood and, and church. But purity, compassion over purity can also just mean this idea that there is no such thing as theological purity, this idea of that, you know, that, that, that we have arrived at our church, whatever that church is, at some kind of theological purity or, the, or pure understanding of who God is. No, we, we all are, you know, engaging in this kind of messy and broken, uh, you know, thing called faith and spirituality, and we need to have, we need to listen to each other and hear alternative views that we might disagree with, maybe from other religions, and that's another understanding of compassion over purity, you know, compassion meaning hearing or seeing the humanity in each other and in our different understandings of, of God or what, what, whatever language we use for the transcendent, you know, having compassion, hearing, seeing each other as human and, and hearing, um, hear, really listening to each other in that regard is how I think of it, but that's really good. Thank you, Leanne. Um, somebody else want to respond or, or uh, have an idea or thought today? 
Well, my, my hope is that talks like this make us feel more at home uh, in our faith, in our Christianity, and make us feel less like we're out on the fringe and engaging in something that is, you know, totally unorthodox in a way it is. But uh, my hope is that you realize that we are part of a much longer and story tradition, not just within the church, but within our within uh, relationship with our Jewish brothers and sisters as well. Uh, and so we are grounded in, in a long history of Midrash and those kinds of ways of approaching the text. But thank you for being here today, my friends. And for those of you who participate online, thank you for being here as well. We're formally dismissed, but you're welcome to hang out and chat. Go in peace.